0: We are in the middle of John's account of the Last Supper. When the disciples argue over who is the greatest among them, Jesus takes the role of a servant and washes their feet himself to show them how they must change their attitudes towards power and status. Judas has become upset. And has left to go betray Jesus. I wonder what Judas does in these next hours. All the religious leaders he needs to speak to are going to be busy with their own Passover celebrations. There's no way they can get away. And even after he is able to speak to, you know, Caiaphas or Annas or whoever he goes to, They'll have to gather the rest of the Sanhedrin and get the soldiers out of bed or away from their own family celebrations. This is like a major holiday. No wonder it takes many hours for the arrest to finally happen. Meanwhile, back at the dinner, Jesus continues, Little children, I will only be with you a little longer. But as I told the religious leaders, Where I go, you cannot come either. Instead, I am giving you a brand new commandment. Love each other just like I have loved you. This is how everyone will know that you are my disciples. They'll know from the love they see within you. Then Peter pipes up again saying, But Lord, why can't I come with you? I would lay my life down for you. And Jesus says, no, as it is written, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now that happens to be a big prophecy in Zechariah about the day of the Lord and about how terrible it will be, but how even though like two thirds of the people will perish, the Lord will pass the remaining third through the fire to be refined like silver and gold. And afterwards, they will call on the Lord and the Lord will answer. The Lord will say, they are my people. And the people will say, the Lord is our God. So Jesus is pointing to this end time passage when he says to Peter, or when he actually, when he asked Peter, would you lay down your life for me? No, I tell you for sure. Before the rooster crows this morning, you will have disowned me three times. It is so telling that Jesus is reminding Peter that this will be for him like passing through fire. If Peter remembers this exchange, he will know that Jesus is telling him, even though he fails when he denies Jesus, he will still be redeemed. In the inner pain, Peter will suffer afterwards. He will be refined. And afterwards, Peter and Jesus will be closer than ever. But I, I don't think Peter understands this link to Zechariah in this moment. Jesus quotes it, but I don't think Peter makes the connection. I don't think he figures that out till a whole lot later. What Peter is experiencing in this moment, I expect, is shock. Shock. At Jesus telling him he'll deny Jesus three times this very evening? How perplexed and crushed Peter must be. He must be thinking, how can this be? What's about to happen? And into the stunned silence, Jesus speaks again. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. It's okay. I have prayed for you, Peter, so your faith will not fail. And so that afterwards, you can help your brothers. You all believe in God. So believe in me as well. In my father's household, there are many dwelling places. Otherwise, why would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, that's interesting. We don't have a record of Jesus already telling his disciples that he's going to prepare them a dwelling place. That's a conversation we're only just now hearing about. Jesus continues, and I will come back to get you and take you there. Now, this is our first hint that after his death, Jesus will be coming back to get us. Then he says, you already know the way there. Think about that. We already know the way to our homes in our father's house where Jesus is making ready our places. And still, even though we know the way, Jesus is still going to come back and get us and take us there. It's as if we are meeting in the middle on the journey. Then Thomas, the twin, the one who had had encouraged the disciples to go with Jesus from Bethany to Jerusalem, even though they knew Jesus was going to his death, this courageous, committed Thomas says, but We have no idea where you're going. How can we already know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way, the path. Basically, Jesus is saying, you know me. I've told you to love one another just like I've loved you. So you know the way. I am the way. And if you think of this a little more broadly, Jesus could also mean I am as the name of Yahweh. The I am is the path. And this actually makes a ton of sense to me. This is what Jesus has been saying all along, right? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the path. Jesus has set all these words, path, truth, and life, up as synonyms only god the i am is the path the truth and life the life and jesus has emphasized in his ministry that he and the father are one back in john ten thirty eight, jesus told the religious leaders the father is in me and i am in the father He said back then, he said, that's what all his miracles and works testified to. He's saying exactly the same thing here to his disciples. God is the path, the truth, and the life. And Jesus is also the path, the truth, and the life. He tells his disciples, if you had actually known me, truly perceived me as I am, you would would have also known the Father. But from now on, you do know the Father, and you have even seen him. Those poor disciples are so bewildered. Philip says, wait, what? Uh, Lord, you show us the Father, and that will be enough. And Jesus says, oh, good grief. Philip, don't you know me by now? How How can you even say, show us the Father? Don't you believe I am in the Father and the Father is in me? I am not doing this on my own authority. It is the Father doing his work. In fact, if you would just believe this, then you would do even greater things than I because I am leaving to go to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be honored in the Son. That word honored is often translated as glorified. It's the, they're the same word in Greek. But as you'll see in a minute, I think we understand it better if we choose the word honored in our English translations. So let's talk about this, whatever you ask in my name, bit. We need to be thinking with our ancient Near East cultural hats on here. This entire culture was built on a system of patronage. This is well-attested, thoroughly documented, and it was widespread across the Roman Empire. Seneca the Younger, an extremely famous philosopher in Rome who was the same age as Jesus, wrote about this important and pervasive social system in his work titled On Benefits. You can access this work on Google along with a ton of other resources explaining the prevalence and operation of patronage in the ancient world. It is a big thing. In a nutshell, the patron usually a wealthy aristocrat, would provide benefits to a set of clients. These benefits were things like money, goods, contacts with the patron's network of aristocrats, jobs, favorable judgments, that sort of thing. In return, the clients would be utterly loyal to the patron, they would vote for him. They would give him information. They would do whatever he asked of them. And above all else, they would honor him and hold him in high esteem and never speak a word against him. Whatever the patron asked, the client would endeavor to do. When Jesus talks about glorifying the Father, He's using words of patronage. To glorify means to honor, and I've translated it as honor so we can understand this sentence the way the disciples would have understood it. Jesus is describing a patronage system. It's not about money nor God being the great vending machine in the sky. But Jesus is trying to explain how sure the disciples can be that whatever they ask him, he will do in order to reflect honor onto God. So what does this patronage system look like when applied to us and to God the way Jesus describes it? First off, God is obviously the patron, top of the heap. But the benefits he gives us are not money and jobs, et cetera, et cetera. They are life, healing, wholeness, filling all our needs and being in relationship with us. And the disciples would have understood that in return, they owe God honor and loyalty and their service. They also understand that they cannot have other patrons besides God because you can't be loyal to two patrons who might oppose each other or overlap in their interests. And Jesus has often said, you cannot be loyal to both God and money, for you will love the one and hate the other. Jesus was using the patronage system as an example to get his point across. These folks have been raised in the patronage system. This is how their lives work. This is how their world works. This is like basic for them. So where does Jesus fit in all of this? Well, that's the key point that Jesus is trying to get across, actually. We already know that Jesus has been the conduit of life and healing and wholeness and the presence of God in the world. So he's definitely part of that bit of the system. And Jesus has been saying that he is in God and God is in him. He has come from God and he is going back to God. So he's definitely part of that bit as well. But even so, Jesus continually deflects all honor to God. For Jesus, this is all about God. In fact, someone once called Jesus the, quote, good teacher. And Jesus said, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Jesus has consistently said his works glorify, that is honor, his works honor God. So Jesus is part of the giving honor and service to God bit of the system as well. And because Jesus is both divine and human, he is in God and he is in us and in all that flows between us. And we are in him and in God, and we are part of all that flows to and from God. Jesus is trying to get this idea across to his disciples using words they understand. When Jesus says to the disciples, I will do whatever you ask in my name, he is saying, He is in the patron position and will bestow on us whatever life, healing, wholeness, or other of those kinds of needs that we have. All we need to do is ask. Those are, that's, this is what God has to give are these things. But he is also placing himself in our position, in the client position, and says that in doing this, He is only doing what the father has asked him to do. And therefore, his obedience results in honor flowing to the father. The father has asked Jesus to open the floodgates of heaven to us. And Jesus' obedience in this honors the father. You see how that works? When Jesus says to ask for something in his name, he's referring to the idea of a client calling on the name of their patron. The client is under the protection of the patron. The client is a beneficiary of the patron. If anyone gives you trouble, you just tell them who your patron is. If you have a need, you tell them you are representing your patron and they'll give it to you. Jesus is our patron, but he is also the son, the client, just like us, fully human. By infusing this entire patronage model with his presence, Jesus is transforming it completely (laughs) and blowing the disciples' minds. He is transforming people's understanding of God's relationship with them, using language and cultural references they understand. That's always what God does. He has always met us within our cultural understanding of religion and of power, and he uses it as an object lesson for us. Here's another example. Remember the old sacrificial system way back in the desert, before there even was a temple, back when God traveled around the desert with the Hebrews and inhabited a tent called the tabernacle? The Hebrews were barely a nation yet, They had just come out of slavery in Egypt, and they were accustomed to the gods of the ancient Near East, gods who demanded sacrifice of animals and even of humans. Even after the parting of the Red Sea and the fire by day and the cloud by night and the daily manna falling from heaven to feed them, Even though God had so miraculously made himself constantly visible in power and in tenderness, the people were still going out into the desert and sacrificing animals to their old gods. Some of them were even sacrificing to an Egyptian goat god inside the camp. Did God strike them dead? Did he obliterate them? No. God came to meet them within the context of their understanding of what a God desires. He ordained an elaborate set of sacrifices that the people and their priests could participate in daily and monthly and on special festival days. And within this system of sacrifices that the people had preconceived notions about, God proceeded to make himself known as a different kind of God. For one thing, he made it clear there was to be no child sacrifice. He'd made that clear even before they became slaves. Sacrificing of humans is anathema to God. It always has been. But this was so ingrained in the ancient Near East culture that it was an ongoing struggle for God to get the Israelites to stop this. It was, it, this lasted centuries. Also, none of the sacrifices ordained by God had to do with begging God for rain or crops or protection, like they did for all the other gods. All of God's blessings were freely given to the people simply because they were his people. This, of course, flew in the face of the people's understanding of what sacrifices were for in their culture. The way God set it up, all of the sacrifices and festivals were organized around two main themes. One was thanksgiving to God, which also included things like specific petitions and personal vows. And the second was healing from sin of all types, personal, priestly, and communal. On top of that, if a sin was like towards a person, if you'd harmed somebody, the sacrifice ritual included making restitution over and beyond the actual loss. Where an economic value was hard to ascribe to a sin towards someone else, the priest was responsible for setting a reasonable value. In all these ways and more, God completely subverted the old relationship between a God and a worshiper. God used their existing cultural framework of understanding to enter into a relationship with them and to transform their understanding of who God is. So when you realize that Jesus is speaking within the current Roman cultural understanding of relationships, Greco-Roman, all of a sudden, the things he says make a whole lot more sense. And you can see why the disciples are a little confused. Jesus is completely subverting and transforming their understanding of God and their real understanding of power and honor. They're, they've never heard of someone being the patron and the client at the same time. Jesus is bending their minds and breaking their ideas of patronage when he says to them, you may ask me for anything and I will do it. Jesus is bringing God down to them and drawing close to his people is exactly what God's been trying to do since the very beginning. So when Jesus tells the disciples, if you had actually known me, you would have also known the father. And now you do know the father and have seen him. He's trying to emphasize that they know the Father just as he does. Everything Jesus has, he has given to us. Everything he could do, we can do. Jesus says, I am not the point. Everything you see me do is just the Father doing his work. And it is the same for you. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be honored in that. You can ask me for anything and I will do it. Jesus, the Father, and all of us are part of a single ecosystem infused by Jesus in which all honor flows to the Father and all blessings flow to us. But as you know, Jesus is all about walking the walk, not just talking the talk. He says, If you love me, as an agape love, not just as friends, but truly loving me holistically, keep, watch over and preserve my commands. Do what I have told you to do. Then Jesus says the most amazing thing. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another paracletan, the spirit of truth, to be with you forever. The world isn't able to receive him because it does not look at him or know him, but you do because he dwells with you and in you. This is such a huge promise. The word paracletan is rooted in the concept of an advocate, in particular, someone who stands up in court on your behalf. It is someone you call to your side when you're in trouble. And note that Jesus says this advocate is the actual spirit of truth. We'll explore this more in our breakout groups. Jesus continues, I will not leave you orphaned or fatherless. I am coming to you. In just a short while, the world will not see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live. On that day, you will know that I am in my father and you are in me and I am in you. And here, Jesus completely collapses the whole patronage model into a model of all of us dwelling within each other. This is the real model. This is the truth. This is what Jesus bears witness to and what he's trying to get his disciples to grasp. There is no separation between God or Jesus or us. I don't think we have ever quite grasped this ourselves. And the disciples sure as heck don't get it. And uh, also notice that red flag phrase, that day. That almost always in scripture refers to the end times and the coming of the Messiah. It's possible that here it refers to resurrection day. Mm, Could go either way. Jesus has just said, I am coming to you. I will not leave you orphaned. He knows he's leaving even after his resurrection. And I think that's what he's talking about. And he knows he, he won't be coming back until the last day. And he's, I think he's telling his disciples they won't fully realize the truth of this radical model of being in God and in him and us in them and all that until that day. So in the meantime, he's sending us the Paracletan, the spirit of truth, to be with us while he is gone, to be with us until that day. Jesus continues, the one who holds on to my commandments and actually observes them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me is the one who will be loved by my father. And I will love this one too. And I will show myself to them. The, the word show here is a very physical word. It means God, it means Jesus will make himself visible to the one who loves him. It is a word meaning to actually appear in person. It It also means to notify. Um, it is Jesus' promise that just like he is able to see what the father is doing so he can do it too, we are able to see what Jesus is doing so we can do it too. That is the whole point of being able to see each other. That's how we learn from our moms when we're little kids. That's how we learn from God and from Jesus. Well, this confuses Judas. He's another one of the disciples, not Judas Iscariot, who has already left. This Judas asks a question that many of you may have. He asks, but why would you do that? Why would you show yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus seems to just repeat himself. He says, if someone loves me, they will keep my word and the father will love them and we will come and dwell with them. This is the father speaking, not me. I already told you all of this. The Father will send the Paracleton, the Holy Spirit, to teach you all things and to remind you of what I have said. There's that paracletan again, that advocate, the one who is on our side and speaks up for us. But notice the differences between this statement and what Jesus said before Judas asked his question. A minute ago, Jesus said he would ask the Father to send this advocate. Jesus knows his disciples will need help and defense against the kings and rulers who are going to seek to destroy them. They will need words when they are dragged to court. And in both of these statements, it is the father who sends help. This is what God does. This is what God has always done. In the first instance, Jesus calls this advocate the spirit of truth sent to be with us forever. But now This time, in answer to Judas's question, Jesus is even more clear. This is the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God sent to teach us all things and to remind us of all that Jesus has said. The answer to Judas's question is that the world never listened in the first place. Only those who listened and are continuing to listen will be able to remember and to be taught by the Paracletons. Jesus must have looked up at this point and seen alarm in the disciples' faces. He says, do not worry about all this. Do not be afraid. I am leaving you peace, my peace, not the way the world gives. When I say I'm going away and coming back to you, you should be glad because I am going to the Father and the Father is so much greater than I am. I have not told you this in advance to scare you, but to let you know that when it all happens, you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no hold on me, but this is happening so that the world may know that I love the Father, and whatever the Father has commanded me, that is what I do. Some streams of Christianity see this, quote, ruler of the world phrase as a reference to Satan, but I see it as a personification of the religious leaders, soldiers, and Romans who are even at this very moment being mobilized to arrest Jesus. You can interpret it either way or both ways. He's certainly talking about evil as it is represented by the governing hierarchy. Then Jesus says, get up, let us go from here. Well, either this get up and let's go is meant metaphorically or it's a cultural thing because nobody actually gets up from the table yet. Jesus has a lot more to say at dinner. Or perhaps John has Jesus' remarks out of order. Maybe he's used multiple sources and is now switching to another source. But for whatever reason, they don't actually get up and go anywhere yet. So this is where we'll pick up next week. For now, let's talk some more about the Paracleton. Welcome back, everybody. So our uh, the discussion about the the Holy Spirit was um, I divided the questions in kind of two parts. So the first couple of questions were about you know what does jesus say the function of the holy spirit is and what might the how might that have landed with the disciples how might they have heard that and understood that and hopefully you know some discussion about how it lands with you and then the second set of questions were along the lines of looking at that word another where jesus says i'm going to send you another holy spirit and i was asking you know have you ever noticed that before and wh- what who or what would have been the uh, the 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 holy spirit that came beforehand you know this spirit of truth and and could there have been more than one and all that so talk to me about what you thought
1: yeah sorry we we started with the the concept of the Paracleton being like an attorney Um. And that Jesus had promised the disciples that when they were finding themselves in these situations where they were going to have to speak up to not worry that the words would be given to them, you know, like a good attorney who would, um, be there either to speak on your behalf or to, um, give you what you needed to speak up, um, (laughs) And that um, when you looked at the two definitions that you gave us from Strong's and from Helps Word Studies, that that sort of came out an advocate, an intercessor, um, but also uh, someone who was there to comfort and to console. Um, And um, so... What we struggled with more was the question about who is, you know, the another.
2: Okay.
0: Um, well, let's stick on those first two questions for a bit. Um, any other comments on the first couple of questions?
3: Who's the guy that's stood by the fence and fed the words to somebody who was wooing a woman? Oh, now de Bergerac. thank you okay so i just had this image when we read this of that that it's somebody who's helping us know what to do because we're about to face some tough stuff this is disciples that's what i meant yeah
0: does it sound like Jesus is saying life is going to be hunky dory and all these blessings are going to come on you and you're no. going to be rich and and have no. big houses no. and jets and lots no. of power and political clout and is that what Jesus is preparing his disciples for? No, no, no it's I mean, the exact opposite.
4: them, but. I don't think that they can comprehend the hardships they're going to be facing right? because it's far more. The persecution is far more than they've seen. They haven't seen Jesus be crucified yet. They don't understand how bad it's going to get.
1: And it's going to get bad. I think they have a general understanding that they are all in danger Yeah, yeah. right now. I mean, that seems apparent. Um, but they probably don't realize how this is going to play out. Jesus is telling them, I'm going to die. I'm not going to be here very long. I'm going to be leaving you. But I don't think until the reality hit and they saw him on the cross mm-hmm. and knew that he was going to die this horrible death, um, That was probably when reality really hit home and all the preparation Jesus did ahead of time. They still weren't really emotionally ready for that.
3: Right. Or understood the magnitude of it, I think, you know, because this is all new for everybody. I just am really stuck on Jesus telling them, hey, you're going to get another um, paracletan that will teach and remind you. So you're going to have some help. You're not alone. Yeah. Yeah.
5: And I think that itself indicates that he was the first paraclete. Yeah. And that's why he says another. Because he's not going to be with them and he's trying to grant them comfort that they're not going to be alone. That he
0: that, that he they will have a helper like he was a helper. Right. Yes. So, um, exactly.
1: Yep. We were we were also, though. Thinking, you know, that was that was one of our first thoughts was that the first parakutan was Jesus. But then also we thought maybe it goes farther back because the the disciples were all Jews. And um, and if you go back to Moses and you go back to that early time when Israel was becoming a nation and God was establishing this relationship and said, I'm gonna give you this structure that is going to inform how our relationship is going to work, which is very different from anything you've ever seen before. Was maybe that the paraquiton? So or another, um, one of my questions was, could
0: there have been more than one previous one? Yeah, we didn't get to that question, but yeah. Yeah, Martin?
4: we were we were talking about how in in the beginning with the message the way judaism judaism was they were a nation they were set apart they were special they had a singular relationship with god it wasn't necessarily about conversion anybody else it was about following the laws that were set out the the sacrifices no no human sacrifice no other gods things of that nature and they followed that ritualistically to to remind themselves of their relationship with god but now we're in a situation where jesus is going to leave and this message that he's been sharing with us is it's more than just the judaism nation we're going to involve the gentiles all other walks of life and yes they're in danger but they also now they're in danger from their own civilization but they're also being told you're going to be spreading the word and you need to treat all people like i've told you and taught you and my mind went to when the speaking in tongues comes and they're going to go out and spread this word they have that gift but they also have a gift of understanding and comfort and wholeness with what they're doing does that make sense
0: for sure for sure
4: A lot of it's like even in a relationship, not everybody, but many people choose to have a partner in life. And that partner helps you. When you get a little ahead of yourself, they go, hey, whoa, wait, can we take a breath? Let's look at these things too. And they help you with your big decisions or vice versa. Your partner might get excited in the moment. And want to do something and you have to say, oh, well, wait, can we take a breath and look at this from this angle? We do that with a human being that we confide in. It's a nature, a natural thing for us to need help. And when we're all alone and we, for example, don't have our partner. We're alone, but we still have the Holy Spirit. We still have that guidance in those still moments when we listen. Well, I wonder... I still miss my mom. I want my mom. I want to ask her things. And then there's those moments when it hits me that I don't have that relationship, that person to go to.
0: It reminds me of that... um passage that says train up your children in the way they should go and when they are grown they will not depart from it I call those mom tapes you know just record the mom tapes for them um, uh, so that they have this library inside their hearts that they can access our moms do that for us our moms are paracletons in our lives um, or they should be. They can be. Other mentors and people can be paracletans in our life. There are, if you really believe what Jesus says here, that the paracletan is the spirit of truth and that that spirit lives in us, as well as just being with us to support us, but it lives in us. Then each of us can be a paracleton in this world and for each other and and that I think of it as kind of like a guitar string that's in me that resonates you know you've seen you've seen the videos of how resonation occurs and it's and and it enhances. Another resonation and a bridge collapses because you're, you know, it's resonates that kind of a thing. That's how I think truth works. When we encounter truth, it resonates with the truth in us. And when we speak truth or be truth, that resonates with the other folks.
5: You know, I think, sorry that you can't see me. I'm on the opposite side of the table from Brian. Um, You know how, I don't know if this has ever happened to y'all, but it's happened to me, where you're out in a restaurant or something or in a store and you see another person and your soul just kind of is drawn to that person and you feel like that person um, must also be a Christian. And then you get an opportunity to talk to that person and um you know, they say something to you about Jesus or God or something. And so you strike up that conversation and all of a sudden you're like, I knew you were a Christian. And they're like, you know what? I felt that about you too. Mm-hmm. And it's like that spirit that you have in you is drawn to their spirit because we are one. And You know, if you have that unity and you have that spirit in you, then you're
0: drawn to other people that have that spirit, too. And if we have that spirit, then did all the people before Jesus have that spirit, too?
2: Can't hear you, Martha. (laughs) So you showed the little chart of um, the relationships between God and Jesus and uh-huh. humans and how that changed um, the understanding of that changed the understanding of something doesn't
0: change its preexisting reality. Well said. So, is it possible that the Paracleton? in the past, for the Hebrews, whose story is who we're reading, we're not reading the Egyptian story or the Assyrian story or the Babylonian story, you know? We're reading the Hebrew story, and we need to stay in that. The Torah, was that a paracletan for them? Was that how truth how they were reminded. I what else did you remember the things that, that God told them to do to be reminded
1: of yeah. the commandments? You remember that? that was yeah, that was what I was kind of thinking about was that um before Jesus, they still, you know, when when they came out of Egypt and were just trying to figure out what does it mean to be the nation of Israel? Because nobody knew. Before then, um, and and who is this Yahweh, and what is our relationship to this Yahweh, and and why does it matter, and and oh, this is supposed to be exclusionary. Well, how does that work, um, and and so the the rituals, the the scriptures, um, the the functions of the priests, all of those things, I think, were part of the Perikleton structure for the nation of israel to get to know god and to understand that relationship that god was seeking with the nation of israel that was different than any relationship god might have with other peoples um it's like like, i'm your god i'm your god you're my people This is, you know, this is how I want you to understand the relationship. And this is how we will get to know each other is through these things. As you said, Gail, partly in a structure, a cultural structure that they would understand, you know, where sacrifices, you know, they, they would not be ready to understand a relationship with a God where there were no sacrifices involved. Right. So God. Change the criteria and the understanding and the purpose of the sacrifices, but still gave them that that thing that they could do that they would understand as a religious ritual. Martha, I like um, that.
2: Was, that was so interesting to me, Marlene. Where um, even in the Old Testament, God said, "Let's make a little adjustment here. This is how you really do ritual. This is how you're in relationship with me." And I think to some of my, um, in my anthropology classes (laughs) um, and in other sources of information that when Christianity moved into a new area, the what did not happen was a wiping out of people's cultural expressions, but an adaptation of, their cultural expressions. And I'm going to even say an adaptation of the Christian expressions in ways that those folks could understand. And the aha moment for me in this was, that's that was nothing new. That was how God established the relationship with God's people. And given that it was different what people understood about how people related to gods when we learned that one of the differences between the God we know and the gods that were known in those ancient times. One example is this God moved with you. Yes. Know, that first relationship where the other gods were were in place. They tied
0: they were tied to a particular land. Yeah.
2: So this. um this is God understanding how to speak in the language people can understand.
1: Yeah.
0: So even yeah, if that language, you know, if we're on the outside looking in and don't have all the gloss of, you know, our Old Testament understanding, we would look at these, the sacrificial system and, and call it idolatrous. It would look idolatrous to us, right? right. right. Yeah. I can't find the raise hand feature. That's okay. You
3: can just like wave or whatever yeah. or speed up. I, I want somebody to show me where that is too. But I was going to say, when you asked about, um, did other people have this paraclaton, um, many moons ago when I was teaching and we did thematic units. Um, I know that our social studies classes had the kids. Um, it, it was like a week and they had to chart out. The four, or five big religions of the world, and then they would have to list like, you know, what is their guide? You know, the Bible, the Torah, whatever. Um, who who is the head? And but then it was the tenets. What is the tenets they have to follow? And I don't recall any of them having ten, <laughs> the way mm-hmm. we do with commandments. But they all pretty much said the same thing. And, you know, some of the kids would come in and say, basically, no matter who you are, you're supposed to just be a good person and not hurt other people. (laughs) So, I do believe that everybody
0: had that. If truth is true, and it lives in any human being, it will live in all of us.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, And um, (laughs) I... I go back to um, lessons I learned in childhood about the cultural context of our understanding. Um, You know, my parents were missionaries with Wycliffe Bible translators. And when my my dad was working on the actual, trying to find the right words that would be used in the ultimate translation, um, you have to start with, what do these words mean to the people?
0: You know, because like
1: you would say, okay, so what is the word you use for God? You know, and and in the particular case of the group of people that, that my family was with, they did not share their religious beliefs outside of themselves. They did not share this with white people. So it was a lot more complicated to understand were they polytheistic, were they monotheistic, were they strictly Ancestor worshipers, you know, how did that all work? And so the he got a, a word, a name, Ejadwalya. And so then he had this whole list of criteria that he would ask, are these characteristics of this Ejadwalya, to make sure that when they did the translation, if that was the word that was going to be used, that it would be understood by the people That Mm. this is the God with the characteristics that we understand from the Bible. And having to be very aware of the culture so that the translation was culturally sensitive and properly placed so that it would be understood by the people that this new translation was going to be given to so that it wasn't just you know let's take the King James version of the Bible and put it in their language and expect the Holy Spirit to do the translating. It was really let's find the context, let's find the right language, the right words, so that it all makes sense to them from their viewpoint.
3: That's awesome, Marlene. That is say, great. Say the name and again. They were. Pardon me? I'm sorry. Say the name again. They're of the God. Of God in Jaguaria in Jaguaria and where was this
1: this is in Brazil okay okay and
4: it it and it leads us back to the spirit being in us if the spirit wasn't in your parents they wouldn't have had that urgency and importance of meeting that criteria And finding that information, you can just translate a Bible and slap a cover on it and hand it out. But if you're not meeting the people where they are, it means nothing.
1: Yeah. And And I think some of the biggest damage that's been done by missionaries, especially in the 19th century, was ignoring culture. And and sensitive to language and practices and and destroying cultures.
5: Devaluing it. Yeah. Understanding the difference between
3: Christianity
5: and nationality.
1: Yeah.
3: Well, here, Gail does that for us. I mean, how many lessons do you you provide an etymology that says this word was used like this because it
0: enhances our context? So... I'm trying exactly I'm trying to to take it out of the arcane language that that we've always seen it in and and bring it and show you the richness underneath the word so that so that you I think we get a grasp when there's like five different <laughs> words five different meanings for this word they still they'll share a root context and by hearing all five words then we kind of get an idea for what was being conveyed. It's not You know, I just, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Mm, Go ahead,
5: Shirley. It just reminded me of something and um, I work with little kids. So Sesame Street just came to mind. And there's a little cartoon sketch thing on, on Sesame Street where it's a little girl and a chicken. And she's talking about how in this one particular country, they don't, say that the center of their being, you know, is our we say heart, but in this other language other country in their language, it's the stomach. Mm-hmm. And so she would say, so if we lived there, instead of saying I love you with all my heart, I would tell you, I love you with all my stomach. Mm-hmm. And just that little snippet on Sesame Street helps children even understand that cultures are not all the same, and that's okay.
0: Yeah, and I I think that you know I had a I had a Facebook conversation this week where I was trying to get that across to somebody who um, was upset about uh, the uh, Muslim call to prayer in New York City um, that and just it's very hard to try to explain to someone that the whole world didn't just start in this one, you know, New Testament time. It just, it's like there was more world before that. And the Holy spirit was before that. And God was before that. And God is in all of these cultures. These people that Marlene's family went to had a name for God and had identifiable characteristics that you could tell when you lined them up we're God. How can that be? Unless the Holy spirit lives in all of us, right? All over the world in whatever context we're born in, whatever context we're born in. So um, I have a, a last couple of comments, but does anybody else have something to share that you've thought of as we've been? Well, I think it's important to keep in mind, faith
4: and religion are different things. Very different. Religion helps us with our faith, but our faith is within us. Mm -hmm. And that's our relationship.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I want us to remember so hard. I really want this to get, like this to be important that we remember what we've talked about today as we begin to, um, you know, we're going to be done with this class series pretty soon as you can guess from the timeline (laughs) and, and we'll do acts next. Um, when we'll do a class series on acts where Christianity begins spreading to all these other cultures and we, we're going to talk a lot about culture. Um, so this, this is important to, to remember. But what I wanted to um, close with basically is to say that we, what Jesus said is we know the truth. The spirit of truth is in us. It will nudge us and teach us and remind us. And Jesus said, the truth will set you free. So we can let go of the rules. We can take off the training wheels. We can pull down the fences and trust that the truth will resonate within us whenever we encounter it. And wherever we encounter it, and in whomever we encounter it, we will know what is true, what is holy, what is good, and what is life filled. Like someone said to me once if it doesn't feel like love, it isn't love. Right? (laughs) And it's not just about feelings, it's about something core something really core within us that is the guide that Jesus left us with. Alrighty, that's it for today. I'm so glad we're back in the saddle. I missed y'all so much. Mary Marriott said hi. She had somebody, some utility people come to the door right as class was about to start. So she was planning to be here. Um, And I I know Rhonda is traveling or has been traveling. And so there's just, we're missing a few folks, but it sure is good to see your faces and even good to hear you, Shirley, even though we can't see your face. (laughs) Thank you. Good to
3: see everybody. Bye. Thank
0: you. Bye.